A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. two 17-year-old schoolgirls with a passion for a global social enterprise turn their dream into reality and a thriving business? And why focus on period poverty and menstruation products? The 2021 Young Australian of the Year, Isabel Marshall, and her bestie, Eloise Hall, are using the power of their Australian privilege to do something super practical and push back against a pervasive gender inequity. Feminism, by definition, is the belief that men and women should have equal rights and opportunities. Feminism is about equality, isn't it? It's about men and women having the same opportunities in life. If that does not suit you, then get out. You know, there's been a lot of talk recently about whether our country is ready for women leaders. It takes courage and strength to be empathetic. Smashing the glass ceiling yet again. Not now, not ever. I moved on her like a bitch. I just don't think there's a place for sexism in our politics. Nobody respects women more than Donald Trump. This has to stop. Hello and welcome to Broad Talk, the podcast about women, power and the wayward world. I'm Virginia Hausiger. I've got to say, I'm in awe of just about all the amazing people I interview for Broad Talk, and for good reason. They're all awesome. But sometimes something comes along, an issue's raised or an offhand comment's made that kind of just blows me away. And that happened in this discussion you're about to hear with these two extraordinary, thoughtful and amazingly successful young women, Isabel and Eloise. I'll tell you more about that in a moment. But first, my WBPP, world's best podcast producer, Martin, is urging me to remind you to tell everyone you know about Broad Talk and click subscribe. It might just help us find a wee sponsor, which is very much needed. We also want to invite you to join our Broad Talk Facebook group. It's called the Broad Talk Roundtable. That's just two words. We're gathering a really lovely community of terrific people there, and we want to hear from you. Let us know what you're thinking, what you're worried about, musing over, and what questions you'd like to ask me. But now back to that moment I had with Isabel and Eloise. It was when we began discussing the hypersexualization of girls which is a hot theme in Australia right now, following an online survey by former Sydney schoolgirl Chanel Contros, 
who received over 2,500 harrowing testimonies from schoolgirls about sexual assault and harassment from their male peers. I was really disturbed by what Isabel and Eloise had to say about this, particularly around the commodification of sex among teenagers and the confusion around consent, slut-shaming and victim-blaming. Perhaps most disturbing is the discussion about luck and how good luck protects some girls rather than their right to feel safe around boys. It's really fascinating stuff. But we start our discussion diving into the simply brilliant social enterprise they set up when they were still teenagers called Taboo. And staffed by a dozen volunteers, it's an amazing story. They raised around $60,000 to manufacture and distribute organic sanitary products. And then they began pouring the profits into sanitary health projects in developing countries. They've travelled to Kenya and India and set up links with grassroots education programs that are empowering girls around menstrual hygiene and safety. It's truly inspiring work and it works. So it wasn't at all surprising to see Isabel named 2021 Young Australian of the Year. I was there in the audience when her name was called and I scanned her face to try and read what she was thinking at that very moment, but I couldn't. So I began our conversation by asking Isabel what that moment was like for her. Oh man, I my heart just completely jumped out of my mouth, I think. And then I um wasn't expecting it at all. I grabbed my speech that I had written and I thought that um, the speech, that writing the speech, that process would just be quite therapeutic and um, a nice process to refine my own messaging and my own, um, I guess, priorities uh, with Taboo. But I didn't really expect to be sharing that with with Australia, but it was such an incredible opportunity because um, having that platform to communicate our mission um, and communicate all the, the things that Taboo's looking in the future towards. That was really, really um, encouraging and just crazy. It was surreal. Well, you handled it beautifully. You spoke beautifully. Uh, then I saw you doing quite a bit of media, uh, particularly the next day, and you were just flying. It was, it was, it was really fabulous. So you must have been exhausted, though. I did watch you on one. I think it was breakfast TV, and thought, oh, poor thing, because I know myself. You have a really late night, and I thought she's probably exhausted. Were you? Yeah, no, I was definitely running off adrenaline. Um, and that mm. that stuff does wonders. So it, it turned out to be fine. But no, I was I was just absolutely thrilled to be there representing Taboo. Um so I was just trying to soak it all in, really. So let's talk about Taboo itself. Now I know that two of you um were great friends at school and it was after you'd finished secondary school you came up with this idea but what I don't get is why menstruation what what was it about menstruation that really worried you um such that you wanted to do something about that now Eloise can you pick that up yeah it's a great question and it's not often that school leavers will jump straight to thinking about menstruation as a career path so it it it's quite a almost coincidence that the the subject of global menstruation fell into our laps when we were graduating because it did end up 
um, encouraging our career paths. Um, and the next four, five, six, however many years we keep doing this for. What do you mean, though, that it, it fell into your lap, the issue of global menstruation? What Do, do you mean that it, it was being talked about at the time? Yeah. So really the conversation came about when Isabel and I were discussing the concept of a social enterprise. So having a business that exists in regular business forms, but the profits that are made from the company are invested into projects that contribute to people's lives in in one way or another. And for us, when we were discussing this concept, we thought, what are the issues around the world that really need addressing? And what can we sell to make use of the money that we have in Australia? And so we came across the, obviously, menstrual health market it affects about half of our population. We invest in it every mm. single month. And then that got us thinking, what do people do when they can't afford this product? Because really, it's not cheap. And that led us to learning about what women in Australia who are perhaps experiencing poverty might use instead of pads. They might use chucks or toilet paper, socks. And then we also looked into what menstrual health care looks like on a global context and realised it's so intricately detailed depending on where in the world people are positioned and we've got huge rates of menstrual health complications due to the lack of access to dignified product so people might use mattress rippings or or really I guess inhumane things instead of pads. But why were you even looking at, at a social enterprise? I understand that you, you, the two of you had, had been to a conference. Um, I think it might have been some sort of business uh, conference and got talking about social enterprises then. But with both of you just finishing school, Isabel, I know you were moving into studying medicine and Eloise, I know you're also studying, I think, international relations and, and business studies. So why, why also take on a social enterprise? I mean, why? So um, we actually went to a leadership conference at the start of year 12 um, and we were introduced to the social enterprise model by a guy called Daniel Flynn who started um, the amazing brand Thank You. And that really opened our eyes to the concept of a social enterprise and really, I guess, triggered us to consider um, the power of business and consumer groups. And we'd never we'd never considered those things before. Um, and neither Eloise nor I had um, even considered a career in business. Um, we hadn't done any studies ourselves in that area at school. So this was entirely new to us. But we had always been aware and quite sensitive towards the fact that this world we're living on has groups of people that live in entirely different conditions. There are people who are the world's richest um, and they have access to so many resources and so much money. And then at the other end of the spectrum, there are people who live off less than a dollar a day. And that had always been on our mind in terms of the fact that we wanted to bridge that gap somehow. And we'd been doing school leadership projects and campaigns at schools that um, I guess in a sense were um, existing to bridge that gap. But when we came to this social enterprise model, we discovered um, what an incredibly sustainable opportunity social enterprises um, 
like they they offer. By being social enterprise, just to be clear, that means so you've got no you've got no key investors, you've got no shareholders as such. Um, you raise money and you're putting a hundred percent of the profit of what you're doing, selling the mm. the um, sanitary pads and tampons, putting that profit back into education and programs for um, to support other. Mm young women around the world, which makes me then wonder, how do you do what you do if you're not taking a wage, you've got 10 people working for you or voluntarily? How does that all work? Yeah, it's a great question. (laughs) It comes to the complexity of having a social enterprise in Australia, because at this stage, there's no distinct structure that supports social enterprises. So we're registered as a company and we function exactly like every other company. The only difference is our shareholders will never dividend any profit. And we, you're right, couldn't introduce any shareholders that were after a a financial investment because we had no financial return to offer them. And we also aren't registered as a charity, so we're not open and and, um, we don't have access to charitable support. But the beauty of it is that we are selling a product in a market that's worth $300 million dollars. So the access to active and powerful money is there, but we exist as a regular company. So on the shelf space in a in a supermarket, we look exactly like everyone else. We function like everyone else, but there's no one pocketing the wealth and the, the profit that the business makes. So we're not having the rich get richer. We're, we're selling a product that enables to, yeah, support people that need that support, and it's sustainable. So, how how can it be sustainable? Because, as I said, you know, both of you are studying, you're students, you know, have got big courses, and you're working with volunteers. So that's that's what I I don't kind of get. I mean, I- Isabel, do you really anticipate that this is going to continue for for years and grow mm. when you're not putting money back into it? Yeah, the idea is that um eventually when it is um financially viable, we'll be able to pay a wage to people. Um, And that will be quite um, a fair wage, but it won't be like the massive companies that have, um, yeah, have the rich get richer. So that (laughs) that's interesting. Um, I guess then that uh, those volunteers you've got, you could turn into into actual full-time jobs. Hmm. Eloise? Yeah. So this when we started, we realized we need money to start this, as every company does. And instead of going to big investor events and pitching our great idea, we did that, but to people groups that we knew that would support the cause. So it was almost as though we were advocating startup capital on the basis of our mission. And that's exactly what we exist to do. So we hosted a crowdfunding campaign, very early days of the business. And we uh, very successfully and thankfully raised uh, $56,000. So that was a decent amount of the startup capital we needed to start this business. Mm-hmm. And as we know, when you've got a startup capital that you need, you can grow a sustainable business from there. And we are always looking for in investment, but from people who aren't expecting financial return. So that has in, in our history looked like very generous people wanting to support the business and wanting it to, to work so that once we're on our feet, so to speak, we can 
function in, in sustainable ways. And it's not unreasonable for people to be paid for the work they're investing in, which is <laughs> totally um, legal and, and good. So we are really excited to pay people as soon as we can. And we know that with return on the work you invest in is, is a more sustainable, more productive and, and impressive business. So yeah, it is, it's, We've almost we have our t- hands tied in the sense of not being able to offer people um, percentage of of profit, and we have our hands tied in not being available to receive charitable donations or grants. But we also want to really stand our ground and make the expectation known that we should have structures that support businesses like this. There's no reason why we uh, should be prevented from having access to more traditional pools of money or or traditional investors because people do want to invest and that's been really prominent in our journey. I think, yeah, I think particularly when you're doing something that is so meaningful and it has such obvious impact as your website shows, you know, the impact you've had um, in uh, Uganda um, and in various other places in Sierra Leone is, is extraordinary. But coming back to how both of you manage to do this whilst you have other lives, you're young, you're, you, you've got university degrees, how you fit it all in. Now, Isabel, you know, you're doing medicine for goodness sakes. How, how do you fit this in? Because it's not exactly a hobby, is it? Well, um, I decided I couldn't, Virginia, so I deferred this year. So I'm not currently studying. I would be doing, I did one week of fourth year um, and then I went to the awards ceremony in um, late January in Canberra and it just became so busy so quickly. Uh, we decided it would be the, the best um, decision for me to defer the year um, so we could have all hands on deck. Yeah, but in, in the past it has been, yeah, it's been a challenge to to balance everything. We're so lucky that we have such a supportive team and the Eloise and I have each other to communicate with and make sure that um, all the all the boxes are getting ticked um, no matter who's busy in one week. Can I ask, has this tested your friendship? Have there been moments when you thought it's too hard? We've, um, I remember when, because we've been best friends since year seven, when we first started the company four years ago now, we had people say, you know, it's, it's quite common advice: never start a company with your best friend or your or your or your spouse. And we thought, oh no, we're we're totally above that. Like you don't know us; <laughs> We've, we're fine. But naturally, of course, our our friendship has been tested over time. It's been a really rewarding and challenging, but good season of getting to know each other better and to depths that you didn't know existed and to heights you didn't know existed (laughs) and then to learn to trust and be proud of our, I guess, differences and areas of skill that we can and can't contribute to. So it's definitely been testing, of course. Yeah, it's interesting as well being um, best friends at high school and we, Eloise and I, were interested in very diff- uh, very similar things. Sorry, we were in the bands together, in the choirs together. We play, we did all the same sports in all the same teams. We were school leaders together, um, and so we certainly considered ourselves as a bit of a package deal. Um, little that like, reflections of each other, and then I guess as we grew and we personally grew in our own individual ways um we've learned to respect and appreciate those differences and of course there are yeah growing pains along the way Isabel I'm going to ask you a difficult question now and you can tell me to go jump in the lake if you don't want to answer it that's fine but you just mentioned that you 
both of you came as a package deal during school because you were so similar and great friends. How did that play out, though, when you were nominated as the South Australian Young Australian of the Year and it was just you and not Eloise and yet you have been completely equal in setting up Taboo? So what was going on there? Mm. Yeah, that was a really complicated time. I had been anonymously nominated and didn't know that I was nominated until quite late in the process. Um, And by the time I found out, um, there was no scope for nominating anyone else. My first reflex was to go and nominate Eloise, of course, because um, this is something we have done together and she deserved that nomination. But there was no way to do that. And there was um, the, the, the Australia Day Council was helpful, like in trying the best they could, um, but they they couldn't find, they couldn't jump through the loopholes that didn't exist for that. Um, you have to both be independently nominated in order to have the joint um, award. So that was that was a real shame, actually. It, it would have been a lot, it would have made a lot more sense if we were nominated together and could have received it together. But we have continued to put Taboo forward first in all the opportunities that come from this amazing platform. And that's been the number one goal. And yeah, I'm super grateful for Eloise for for that support. Um, and we've been pushing that conversation together and um, the mission of Taboo together for all these years. So this is what we're continuing to do. And i got to say, you do that, you really do do that beautifully. And I'm not just saying that I've been really impressed watching from a distance at how, how incredibly integrated you are. Just lastly, and we, I want to move on from Taboo and, and talk about a few other things, but I do want to ask you both, you at one stage did um, go and travel overseas and I think you went uh, to India um, and, and elsewhere and I understand that was about sort of doing a bit of field research for Taboo before you really got going. Can you tell us a little bit about what what you saw that might have shocked you, particularly in relation to the lives of young women your age that you came across? Yeah, we went to Kenya and India and it was a few weeks away from home where we learnt about what menstruation looks like for other cultures and what opportunities there were around the world to support people and girls most specifically uh, access products so they can attend school. And what we found is that it was a huge contributing factor to why a lot of young girls drop out of school quite young because they don't have access to products, which means that they don't have the confidence or capacity to attend school for that week of every month. So it's quite significant. And uh, there was one town in particular in Kenya that was really quite rural. They had, I think, 40 enrolled girls in year eight. And by the time year 10 came, there was four girls left. So you can see that really stark contrast of pu- well, the, the comparison of puberty and and staying in school is quite integrated. So unfortunately, that is quite prominent in a lot of areas around the whole world. And and quite unfortunately, it's still applicable as a situation in Australia. So yeah, it was very much a research-based time. And the stories that we heard from the girls and the questions they would ask were so highly intertwined with their futures and access to knowledge and this, you know, simple fact of when when can I drop out of school or can I stay in school and, okay, I don't have to get married really young or I don't have to have babies really young because that's not my only security blanket. So to see that pads were actually a ticket of freedom for a lot of these girls was not only encouraging but 
life-changing and it was really obvious that this was a cause we needed to commit to. And Isabel, how how was that trip for you? Mm. For me, it really um, illustrated how complex this issue is. We not only saw um, girls who would soon drop out of school because they had their period, we also saw girls who were selling sex for pads uh, because they couldn't afford them in other other ways. We were seeing girls um, that we were told would go to, to get FGM, so female genital mutilation, that summer holidays. And these were girls we were looking at face to face with in these classes, knowing that that was the future they envisioned for themselves simply because they were female. And when you when you consider things like FGM and a lack of access to um, menstrual products, um, they actually, it's a really dangerous combination because those open wounds um, paired with uh, unhygienic alternatives for pads um, create breeding ground for bacteria and infection, which is a further complication, um, further impacts their life and their ability to engage in social activities, school activities, employment. It was just so layered and we realised how um, complex and um, how much this issue needed to be addressed. So it was actually quite energising as much as it was exhausting. It sounds like it must have been an incredible trip. Look, I want to move our discussion on and talk more broadly about uh, gender equality as such, but we're just going to stop for a minute and take a short break. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back. I'm here with Eloise and Isabel, and we're going to talk now a little bit about gender equality, which is the the theme of this series of broad talk uh, this this time of year. Now, Isabel, I want to get your initial response to just the notion of gender equality in Australia. How do you think we are tracking? Mm, that's a very complex question with a lot of factors, <laughs> isn't it? I mm. I am so grateful to be in Australia and I know that we are such a developed nation. We're so um, supported as Australian citizens and considering how developed we are, it is a shame that we're ranked so low on that gender equality um, list. And I don't know, even know, I'm still learning about all of this, but 
it doesn't really add up, does it? Yeah, how how supported and how educated a lot of us are and where we fall on on those rankings. You're absolutely right, uh, Isabel. You know, when it comes to Australia's ranking um, for gender equality on the Global Gender Gap Index, the World Economic Forum, one Australia is rate, rated very badly and we've fallen every year. But um, even on the other, all the other global rankings, Australia performs poorly, in fact, quite appallingly, particularly around uh, women's political participation and representation in Parliament. So, Louise, Eloise, let me throw this over to you. When you look at Parliament and politics, particularly federal politics here in Australia, our House of Representatives got just less than one in three seats are held by women. What, what do you see? What, what concerns you? Yeah, well, I think it's quite disappointing that as a democratic country, we don't have equal representation of the people that government is making decisions for. And it's a structure that we need to be able to trust and depend on. And unfortunately, females aren't recognised in um, numbers in parliament, like you suggested, one in three in the Senate, that is just not representative of the people that the this government makes decisions for. And I also think we're we're missing out on a lot of really great opportunity to have representation from really brilliant and highly educated women that are uh, available for these positions. And I think there are many reasons that contribute to why women aren't represented in government, but it is a really missed opportunity. And I guess we can just look to the pandemic. We've just experienced and still experience some of the most admirable responses in a government complex have come from countries that are led by females and maybe that's a coincidence but perhaps not <laughs> um and I, I just be- think yeah in, in Australia we, we should be leading the way in yeah I don't <laughs> believe it's a, con- a coincidence I gotta say I think there's been um you know some really interesting research that's been done now that looks at how uh women global leaders I mean people like Jacinda Ardern and and, and others their management of COVID and uh, a response to a national crisis like that has been really quite different from a lot of strong men type of authoritarian rulers Absolutely. Uh, we've seen. But what I'm really fascinated to hear from both of you, though, is is how you how you make sense of and how you respond to some of the stuff, particularly that's been coming out of Canberra, uh, you know, early this year in February, the numerous um, headlines about um, rape allegations from young Liberal Party staffers. Late last year, we've had uh, Four Corners do the Canberra bubble story where they exposed issues of, I guess, you know, power abuse and demotion of, of women who were having affairs with their ministerial bosses, et cetera, et cetera. What does all of that say to you? How, I mean, do you, do you look at that with horror? Um, what does it tell you about political power in Australia? Isabel? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people respond to stories, including myself, like that, with shock. And I think... I was shocked and I still am shocked to hear of these stories because it shocks me that people think that they can get away with this sort of behaviour. It it actually just really, really shocks me. How do they think that they can get away with treating another person like that? How, how do they think they can get away with sexually assaulting someone, especially in a workplace and a, and a place like, well, Parliament, which represents one sort of workplace? I think it 
hits home because these are people we look up to and we trust with our lives. Um, and if and if we, you can't trust these people with someone's life who's sitting there who may be vulnerable at that point, if you can't trust them with one person in that situation, how do we trust them with the whole mass of us? And then mm-hmm. what does that say about their values and how... Um, and how they view and value women and the people that they um that they are treating in such a horrific way it mm. is shocking and as a woman it's upsetting as an individual it's surprising because i'm one of the few lucky ones who have haven't been treated in such a way so for me as someone who's come from a, a different perspective whereby I'm surrounded by men that I really trust like my and I'm so lucky for that so it does shock me (laughs) you know Isabel it kind of breaks my heart to even hear you say I'm lucky because I haven't been mistreated Mm. and I haven't been harassed Mm. um you know you you, that shouldn't be lucky I mean that's your right to live in a in a in an environment in a way where you're not harassed or you don't don't feel you're being subjected to um you know sexual innuendo or assault um Eloise what about you I think my response has probably been more angry and I guess I'm angry from knowing things like this have been um, that no one's spoken about them for so long. Men have gotten away with this, and this is quite generally speaking, and power plays and sexual assault isn't a new thing. And for centuries it's been an expectation that women stay quiet or somewhat expect them, and it's that narrative of it's the woman's fault for dressing so mm. provocatively or um, it's the woman's fault for drinking too much. And that was even pre- prevalent in a lot of the press recently that it was the woman's fault and that narrative is so it's it's gripped sexual harassment and sexual assault for so long and to see it come out and and those narratives of she drank too much or whatever it may be some framing of it's still the woman's fault is still evident is disgusting and obviously the the assault itself is disgusting and like as he said the fact that people of power and of such power are are, are not being called out on this behaviour for so long is repulsive. But it's also quite encouraging that these, if this happened perhaps 20, 30 years ago, maybe it wouldn't have gotten this far in the news. Maybe it wouldn't have been a discussion you could openly have. And it is in this day and age and with our generation of belief that justice has to be served in these situations. And one thing I'm really hopeful about is that our generation certainly doesn't stand for this behavior and there's no room for excuses or cards to be played that just don't quantify a just situation so I'm really thankful that I've grown up in a generation and I've got the people in our age bracket have a very similar opinion and and that goes across the spectrum of gender it's not something that can be um put up with. So I'm I'm repulsed, but I'm hopeful that this is an expectation of change because misogyny and sexism is something that has been so prevalent in Parliament for so long. Like you listen to Julia Gillard's speech on misogyny. It's not a new term. And thankfully we've got the the voice and the journalists ready to back stories that actually advocate for the for the victim's position. 
You know, one of the things that's really interesting about what you just said, though, is, uh, uh, you know, years ago, perhaps this wouldn't have been reported. I'll tell you something that, that wasn't reported years ago because certainly in my experience as a young woman, it wasn't the case. And that's the issue of sexual assault and abuse of schoolgirls. There's been a big story floating around again in February of this year um, following that online petition calling for greater sex education at schools and education around consent. And I was horrified when I read some of that petition, stories, testimonials from young schoolgirls, you know, some of them really young, about uh, just the behaviour, the, the, the regular weekend behaviour of boys that they were going to parties with and socialising with from private schools about the, the, the sex and the, the assumption that these girls were um, supposedly available for sex that they clearly didn't not only didn't enjoy but didn't really want to be part of. Now, that's something new. Is, is, is that something that is discussed, is, is prevalent around you? I mean, you, you're both, what, 21, 22, so you're much closer to, to that age than, than I certainly am. But, God, it shocked me. Well, it's interesting, Virginia. It didn't – yeah, it's um, interesting. It didn't shock me in the slightest. Um, when we were in year 12, that was 2016, um, year – I started probably going to parties in maybe year 10, year 11, um, yeah, year, year 10 when people were starting to drink and that was starting to be norm, normal for some students. Um, I'm not surprised at those statistics because most of my friends have experienced similar things and I've certainly experienced similar things to a certain extent. As I said before, I've been um, one of the few lucky ones, but I've I have experienced to a certain extent and I know that a lot of my friends have and it speaks to a culture, a very hyper-sexualized culture that, is, that isn't questioned by many students when they're in the situation um, and that's, it's, I, I am just speaking on behalf of myself and definitely not on everyone, um, on behalf of everyone's experience but a lot of that is fueled by the alcohol but just the expectation that as young people are growing up and becoming sexual people there's this expectation that it's going to happen every Saturday night like at a party that that girls and boys will give each other like sexual favors that they probably don't even want that a lot of them don't want and I know lots of boys as well who don't want to be involved with it but there's a real peer pressure by the other guys that you know if they don't want want it from girls or whatever that there's something wrong with them or they're nerdy or whatever and it's just like it's very complex very layered but it speaks to a whole culture of of some nasty nasty culture. Eloise is there an issue of of disrespect though of of females going on here do you think? I think in when I when we were reading the coverage recently about um private school culture in particular around consent and and Um, young people being sexually assaulted and harassed. I think it's a mixture of uh, respect, but also just the conversation of consent, I think is not happening young enough. I certainly got my head around the concept of consent in, you know, definitely post school, because uh, in school, it's not a conversation that is emphasised. And perhaps in the past, it wasn't necessary. But it is definitely necessary now and you can read all of the testimonies that have been shared online lately about how prevalent the issue is. 
So I think there's definitely a lack of respect. And I think the, the like as he alluded to, the sexual favours has become a norm that is so unhealthy for such young people. And there needs to be more open conversation about what is actually happening and the things that are being said and exchanged at parties. I think there's a conversation of realism that needs to be had and perhaps parents and teachers need to stop and think, oh, maybe this is happening earlier than I thought it would. Maybe I need to have these conversations with my young person before I think I would have needed them when I was their age. And unfortunately, it is for the safety of their children and the people that they care for in their schools because it is something that is perpetuating a huge problem. There's so many people graduating from high school bringing these norms into their day-to-day life. And if we have a functioning society that respects one another and we want to break down the culture of rape, then it needs to start in high school. And the, the attitude of consent needs to be brought up much earlier than it is. Even little things that contribute to rape culture, like catcalling, needs to be, we need to have a, a proper discussion about this. And it's, it's so unhelpful and it is such a big contributor to rape culture. Little things that perhaps have been a norm for so long need to be seriously addressed. And it may seem strange, but I think we do need to start with the young people because it's obvious they're suffering from it from such a young age. Isabel, what do you think? I mean, yeah, I mean, are, are boys open to these discussions though? I mean, how, how, how do we do this? See, I, I completely agree consent needs to be a discussion that is had a lot earlier on, but I don't think consent is the only way to solve this problem because in my opinion and from the experiences of people I know very well, often people give consent and they think they want it at the time, but there are so many pressures on young people. And what I'm saying is that I'm going to coin a phrase here, but yes, slut shaming is a massive um, part in this culture, but also kind of um, prude shaming, if you know what I mean. Mm. This concept that like if you're a girl and you're not open to having sex or going to first base or second base in year nine or ten, that you're a prude or a virgin. And that's like that's also got shame attached to it which is such an issue, massive issue, especially for the boys and the girls. Because there are a lot of boys that I knew when I was growing up as well that didn't, they didn't want to take part in it, A, because they respected their female friends and they didn't want to put anyone in a position that they didn't want to be in. But B, they themselves didn't actually want to take part in it. But there's all these pressures from their their friends um, and their cohorts that's telling them to say yes. So if there's, say, a, a young boy and a young girl and the boy asks like are you happy are you feeling comfortable and the girl says yes I am that's actually they're they're all of the people around in their their whole circle are to answer have to answer to that not just the two individuals does that make sense I think I was rambling a bit no 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 it does make sense and I I look again that kind of breaks my heart too because what I take from that is that you just say well that that you're, you're suggesting that both boys and girls feel such pressure that they're perhaps extending themselves uh sexually beyond what they feel comfortable with and you know surely that's going to have ramifications though about uh, you know relationships or, or or you know develop unhealthy relationships and sexual relationships I would have thought Eloise what do you think I I think you're 
you're right, there are ramifications that will be seen and that have been seen. And perhaps there's a lack of celebration of being a child as well that maybe isn't so prevalent. And there's this urge to grow up so quickly. Like you see young girls looking 10 years older than they they are um, because they're the standards that have been presented. And likewise, I feel like boys have that pressure as well to just be older than they are. And uh, I think a celebration of being a child is definitely due because one thing I've very much treasured is my childhood and the opportunity to grow and have those awkward phases but at the right time and I think that's just been thrown into this time warp quite recently that these kids who have access to platforms that they can present to be however old they can be uh, is quite a pressure to then be more sexual than you need to be at a certain age to be more intellectual or uh, not so innocent these expectations are building up to at an adult capacity for children which is so unhealthy mm. I, and you're right I think the, we will drag ramifications into these people's lives when they become adults because they've been practicing being an adult for so long with childlike consequences which is next to none and I'm concerned to see what what is dragged through to their adulthood with because when you're an adult, there, there are consequences, and at least they should be definitely, when, especially when it comes to sexual harassment and assault. These things are real-life problems and adult problems that kids are experiencing. So we really need to address it with quite a serious lens. Gosh, look, I could talk to both of you for hours and hours, and, but we can't, unfortunately. But I'm going to um, round it off now and we'll finish up. But I, I want to ask you to close, what Therefore, does a gender future look like to you, for both of you, and and how do you think we'll get there? Isabel, what does it look like to you? It looks positive to me. I'm optimistic. Good, good, um, good. Perhaps naively optimistic, but these conversations are being had and we're having one right now, and that's testament to the fact that things are changing. I love being a woman in Australia there are so many issues that women have to face um, and I think we're facing them with a lot of courage and um, what I love to see is when women band together and celebrate each other, when goals are met as a collective and I think that those goals are being met and we need to continue celebrating each other and um, need to continue supporting and championing each other on because things are happening and it's and that's thanks to the work of so many incredible women that have gone before us but we still have jobs to do um and I'm excited to 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 be a part of that oh Isabel you make me want to cry (laughs) 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 that is so beautiful Eloise what about you I mean what does a gender future look like to you very similar I am incredibly hopeful we have so many really powerful women and men leading this fight for equality and it's something that we've all grappled with for a long time like post-world war ii it's become really obvious oh wow women can work and you know we've just gone through incremental stages of learning since and finally we have a great opportunity to have equality uh education's looking quite equal Um, prospects to jobs are looking more equal I'm really really hopeful and very thankful for the really great 
educated people who can have these conversations and lead the way and equip people with the vocabulary they need to navigate their way through certain hurdles that uh, women experience in particular. But I'm also really hopeful looking at the men that I have in my life and the men around beyond me, knowing that they absolutely champion uh, the work that I do in feminism and other feminists around the around the place, we've got the support of men because everyone's friends and you know it's a fight for equality, not a, a fight for uh, man hating. And I think the the narrative of, of being a, a man hating feminist is fading into history, and we're really grappling with equality again, which is really hopeful. And I'm so excited to know that my kids, if I have any, will, will, regardless of their gender, be able to give life a red hot shot with equality. And I am really, really thankful for that. Well, thank goodness for youthful optimism. And my goodness, don't we need a bit of that? What about you? Are you optimistic? What does a gender equal world look like? To you. Do you think we're heading in the right direction? I'd really love to hear your thoughts. Long or short, I get a buzz out of hearing from you. So drop me a line on our Broad Talk Facebook page, or better still, join our Broad Talk Roundtable group. I check in there most days, and you can also find me on Twitter at Virginia underscore House, H A U S. Well, I hope you enjoyed that chat as much as I did. And my apologies for a few technical issues we had with Eloise's audio at times, but we got there in the end. So until next time, happy chatting. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.